The fourth reading is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what has been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Carol services normally begin with funny stories about the commercialisation of Christmas. And so I've been commanded to remind you of the little boy kneeling by his bed on Christmas Eve, asking Jesus for presents. Dear Jesus, I've been good for a whole year. Please can I have a bite? And then he thought for a moment and thought, well, that's not strictly true. So he tried again. Dear Jesus, I've been good for a whole month. Please. But actually, that's not strictly true either. Then he had a brainwave. He ran downstairs to the living room, grabbed the figurine of Mary from the nativity scene, and ran back up to his bedroom, dropping to his knees once more, clutching Mary tightly in his little fist, he prayed, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, get me a bite for Christmas. (laughs) But I'm very conscious that uh, all who work in Westminster uh, at the moment feel overwhelmed by the gravity of our current political turmoil and have perhaps little appetite for trivia, trivia. So after reassuring you that across this nation Christians are praying for you and in the midst of all the bad news and fake news I just want to tell you this evening some good news. In fact the very best news you could ever hear. Announced by the angels on the night Jesus was born. 
Before we hear it, I guess many of us may wonder if God really exists. Can I suggest that as peals of thunder suggest the existence of lightning, that there are many thunderous echoes of God reverberating in our own personal experience? Here are six. Firstly, our existence. Scientists know of nothing in the cosmos that can exist without a cause, which suggests something or somebody supernatural before our cosmos, who triggered everything off, before the Big Bang. In other words, God. Secondly, our precarious life. Scientists are amazed by the complex balance of natural forces necessary for human life. For example, between the speed of light, nuclear forces and gravity. Powerfully suggesting a designer. An atheist once visited Isaac Newton, the great Christian physicist, and seeing Newton's complex model of the solar system in his parlour, exclaimed, Isaac, what a wonderful model you've made! Cheekily, Newton replied, Oh, nobody made it, it just happened by accident. Our precarious life suggests a designer, i.e. God. Thirdly, then, our instinctive morality. Most of, us, most of us regard the savagery of war in places like Syria as a moral evil. But if there's no God, such slaughter is surely just evolutionary selection. As the atheist Richard Dawkins famously wrote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. But our instinctive moral desire to protect the weak and to champion human rights suggests that we're shaped by a moral being. In other words, God. Well, fourthly, our self-awareness. Atheists do struggle to explain any benefit to our survival in our capacities for self-aware thinking, for abstract philosophy, and the irrepressible spiritual instincts that lie within our hearts. In other words, thunderous echoes of God. Fifthly, our delight in beauty. If this derives merely from genetic appetite for good breeding partners, why do we gratuitously delight in snow-capped mountains or Grand Reserva's Spanish Rioja, or Rembrandt's paintings or Adele's songs? Why are people still beautiful when they're old or disabled? Our irrepressible delight in beauty is a deafening echo of God. And then there's the instinct, lastly, which persuaded C.S. Lewis to abandon his own atheism, our emotional longings. If there's no God, why do we yearn to contribute, to make a difference to our society? Why do we yearn for justice for the oppressed, for freedom from our guilt, and for life beyond the grave? We have so many deep, transcendent longings beating within our breast, nothing to do with genetic replication. They testify to God in our experience as thunder testifies to lightning in the sky. And so the arrival of God in the baby Jesus not only fulfilled dozens of specific Old Testament prophecies, but confirms what our own experience, indeed the longings of our heart, suggests. You know, God is real. God is real. And then the angels reveal more. God has sent his Son into history to save us. In the reading from Luke 2 that was uh, just read for us, we find these two simple points 
being made. Firstly, God sent his son into history. Verses 1 to 7. Uh, Luke began his gospel, as you may know, explaining that he has written an historical account from carefully researched eyewitness testimonies. In other words, this is no myth. It really happened. And now he tells us when, where, and how our Saviour was born. When? Well, verses 1 to 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census, in case you were wondering, that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. In other words, between 6 and 4 BC. Where? Well, that's verses 3 to 5. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who he was pledged to marry, to be married to him, and was expecting a child. It's very striking, isn't it? God employed a Roman taxation census to ensure that his son was born in Bethlehem, the hometown of King David, to identify him as the saviour promised by the prophet Micah. Perhaps it's both comforting and humbling to realise that God can employ the affairs of nations and perhaps even referendums for spiritual purposes, perhaps the humbling of our pride. When, where and how? Well, verses 67. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available. God sent his son to be born out of wedlock to a poor girl from the lowly town of Nazareth. Three times in this passage, verse 7, verse 12, verse 17, we're told that Mary had to put her little baby in a manger, a cattle trough. Can you imagine that? A new mother putting her firstborn into a cattle trough. God's own son, our great saviour king, humbled himself to enter into our world in poverty. A trajectory of self-denial that will end in astonishing humiliation and self-sacrifice on a Roman cross. Let us never despise or disregard the poor. Indeed, as Rose was praying earlier, for God himself took flesh in poverty. But the burden of these verses is the historicity of our Saviour. I don't know about you, um, perhaps like me, you were shocked by the serious misjudgment of the Christian charity worker who caused mayhem this last week by telling stunned young pupils at an assembly of Flickwood Lane Primary School in Lincolnshire that Father Christmas doesn't exist. A rookie error, compounded by the fact that she then invited two of the girls to come forward and smash up chocolate Santas and reindeer with hammers. As you can imagine, parents and uh, children were horrified. And uh, the school apologised and promised the charity wouldn't be invited back. <laughs> Serious misjudgment, rookie error. Don't smash up Santa in front of primary school children. I just wonder generously if that worker was clumsily trying to say that unlike jolly old Father Christmas coming down the chimney, Jesus really was born into history to save us. These things actually happened. Indeed, a Korean couple newly arrived at our church were telling me last week that they'd always dismissed, dismissed Jesus as a myth, a Western legend, until they visited Israel and discovered that the Gospels are not mythical but historical. 
God really did send his son to be God in skin in Jesus into history. That's the first thing. God sent his son into history. And now for some incredibly good news. Secondly, God sent his son to save us. And this is verses 8 to 14. God sent his son to save us. Look with me at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were understandably terrified. When you think about it, it's not surprising that the birth of God's Saviour was announced by angelic beings. It's very surprising that the announcement is made to working-class shepherds in a field, rather than the clergy, the royalty, or scholars. Surely this is good news for everyone, regardless of salary or education. What the angels announce is, quite frankly, stunning. Look at verse 10. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and, extraordinarily, lying in a manger. If you think about this sentence, it's extraordinary. If we fear that Jesus might be dangerous or damaging, as some ideologies assert, we must have misunderstood him, for the angel says, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of in the birth of Jesus. And if we thought Jesus was boring or burdensome, as some have assumed from their previous experience of school chapel, we must have misunderstood him, for the angel proclaims, he's good news that will cause great joy. And if we assume that Jesus is only for very good people, or very bad people, or very religious people, or just other people, we've definitely misunderstood him. For the angel proclaims he's good news for all the people. Remainer or lever, wherever we're from, whatever we've done, This is good news for you and for me. Because, verse 11, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. And he is the Messiah, the Lord. This baby, you see, wasn't just born to Mary, but to us. In fact, unlike the baby born from a transplanted womb last week, how extraordinary is that? There's nothing very extraordinary about Jesus' birth itself. But there is something utterly spectacular about what this baby will grow up to do. He will be our saviour. Because he's the Messiah, that is the king, promised in the Old Testament. And he's the Lord, that is the living God, to whom we're all accountable. Here is the good news, that God became one of us, to swap places with us on a cross, so that he could be treated like us, and suffer the penalty for our sins, so that we can be treated like him and accepted by God as his children into heaven. It is the most marvellous and simple thing that the supreme being came down and shrank himself down to a few cells in Mary's womb so that as one of us, he could swap places with us on the cross. So, but so many people get confused. Well, why was Jesus so ordinary? So that he could swap places with ordinary people like you and me. Now, why would he do such a thing? Because he loves us. He absolutely loves us. He loves you. 
Sally loves me. Let me illustrate, if I may, you may have heard over the weekend of the remarkable heroism of David Goodwin. Did you read this article in the papers? A 59-year-old British pilot who seized control of a Cessna light aircraft from his less experienced partner, Michelle, when they got into trouble in bad weather over a mountain range in South Africa. Apparently, he angled the plane to take the main brunt of the crash land himself, and despite horrific 95% burns, got all the passengers out of the plane before it exploded, led them down the mountain to safety, carrying his partner's sister before himself dying of his wounds in hospital the next day. Extraordinary, heroic self-sacrifice. But it well illustrates what Jesus came to do for you and for me. You see, he came to take the, the pain, the humiliation, the hell that we deserve from all who trust in him because he loves each one of us so passionately. And the impact of this birth in heaven and on earth are huge. Look at verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, it's the angels apparently, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. Glory to God. Presumably in heaven the crowds are still cheering. And peace on earth. We can now be at peace with God, empowering our reconciliation with one another. Do you know what it is to be at peace with God? To put your head on your pillow at night, to go to sleep knowing that you are at peace with God because of what Christ has done. It's a wonderful feeling. And so the shepherds decide to do something, verses 15 to 20. They decide to go and see for themselves. Look with me at verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, obviously, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they, they went to see for themselves, to check it out, to see if it was true. Can I encourage you, if you've not done so before, find a Bible teaching church near you to go and check it out for yourself. Come to our parliamentary Bible study. One of the many things that are going on here, or indeed the Christianity Explored course that uh, is being advertised. These are wonderful courses to go on. Fantastic opportunity right here in Parliament, organised by Christian, uh, Christians in Parliament. Why not give it a go? Go once. What, can it, what damage can it do? Give it a go. Check it out for yourself. For yourself. Verse 16, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. In other words, they spread the word. Just as if we've discovered the truth about Jesus ourselves, we will want to tell it to as many people who will listen. And by the way, if you are a believer here, you know that Christmas is one of the last remaining reasons to invite people to church. You know, two reasons to take people to church, invite friends and neighbours. One for the kids, secondly for Christmas. And so many people I meet would love to be invited just nobody's bothered yet. So if you are a believer, invite everything that moves. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. Isn't this beautiful? She kept thinking about what she'd heard from these shepherds, as we need to keep thinking, and not just until Christmas and then not think about it for another year. So frustrating that so many people think about it briefly before Christmas, they just forget it in an alcoholic haze. Just think, let's keep thinking about this into next year as well, as Mary did. 
And finally, verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd seen and heard, which were just as they'd been told. In other words, they celebrated with great joy, just as we can. Whatever happens here in Parliament in the days and weeks ahead, serious and grave as they are, we can still celebrate Christmas. We can still celebrate with great joy because of this wonderful good news. The news that God has sent his son into history. It really has happened, you know. And he did it to save us, bringing glory to God in heaven and peace to any of us who will trust in him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this good news, indeed this fantastic news, that you have sent your Son into history to save us, bringing glory to you and peace to all of us who will trust in you. Thank you for this wonderful news that confirms so much of what we've longed for, that we can be at peace with you through what Jesus has done. Lord, if we're new to these things, please help us to Make some effort to find out more, to check it out for ourselves. And for those of us that do know you, please fill our hearts with joy this Christmas and give us many opportunities to invite other people to come and hear about more, more about what you've done. Thank you, dear God, for sending Jesus into history to be our saviour. Amen.